Good morning, beloved. It's good to be together to worship our King. Um, kids, we love having you in here in the summer. Um, today, I would love for you to help me out. I think that you are all incredibly smart, so I need for you to help the rest of the room to know some things because um, there are different things that you're going to encounter in life that actually are a form of promise. Like there's a form of a promise behind some things. And so um, I'm going to show you some things that actually have a promise behind them. And when you know the promise, I want you to call it out for me. So we'll start with this, this thing on my hand. It's a ring. What is the promise behind this ring that I wear on this finger? Yeah, it's marriage. What's the promise there? Yeah, that I'm, I'm committed to my wife that she is mine, I am hers, we, for life, we love each other, I'm committed. So there's this promise of marriage and commitment there behind that one. So how about this one? This one's a little bit difficult. Um, I've got an envelope, and there's this stamp here. What is the promise of that stamp? Go ahead, call it out, Asher. Yes, exactly. This is a promise from the United States Post Office that they will deliver my envelope because I purchased the stamp and placed it on the envelope. Very good. That's a good promise. Um, this is probably the most difficult, but maybe you've seen mom and dad do this at a restaurant. If you get a receipt and you paid with a credit card and you have to sign it, what is the promise of that signature? What was it? Yes, exactly. It's the promise that I'm going to pay for this. So we have promises that we make all the time. They happen in little ways and then in big ways. Sometimes you actually say, I promise, and then you say something. And so we make promises. It's just one of the things that we do as humans. Um, and I find that fascinating, that if you think about the number of times that you give someone your word and how quickly all of life would just absolutely fall apart if we backed off of that, if we decided, you know what? I won't keep my word. And how quickly can everything just fall into utter despair and collapse? Um, I actually read about a study this week. Um, there's an experiment done for this study, and there's a game that was created to, to kind of get some kind of conclusion, some data out of this game about promise making. And so the game involved money, like there's actual money on the line, so there's the motivation that you want to earn as much money as possible. And the game was played with some dice, so you would, or die, you would roll the die, and then there would be someone, there's two people playing together, and you're playing some odds and everything, but the way that it's structured is that each round, one of those individuals would have more power than the other. They would be like a dictator, like, they get to make the final call. But before they would roll the die, they would have to come to an agreement of are you going to accept this or are you going to take this in a way that would lead to your advantage? Like, so there's this back and forth where ultimately they have to make a promise. They have to give their word that they're gonna do something and then they would roll it out. They could then switch roles and there's the opportunity for all the stuff and then ultimately they either keep their word or they do not. But there's money on the line. And so what they're trying to do is see how often will people, because they want the money or they want to win the game, will they go back on their word? If they had already made the agreement, trying to predict what the outcome would be, how often would they go back? And so um, largely there are two theories kind of at play here that they wanted to test. These have been longstanding theories from some other experiments that have been done. But the general idea is most people keep their promises. Like, you put your signature on there and you pay your bill every month. You put the postage stamp on there and it actually gets delivered. Like we live in a world where absolutely people lie. People don't keep their word. But for the most part, it seems like humans really do want to keep their word. 
And so they're testing these two theories. Um, the one theory is that people generally just prefer to keep their word. Or second theory is people don't like letting others down by not fulfilling their promise. And so it's just kind of like a more acute guilt aversion. That I don't like the experience of letting you down, so I'll keep my word. So is it that I just prefer to keep my word, or is it that I just prefer to not see you hurt by me keeping or not keeping my word? And so um, their conclusion was that the study indicated people generally just prefer to keep their word, which is interesting. Like, why is it that even though we absolutely will not keep our word at times, we'll lie and things like that, but in general, we want to keep our word. So uh, that's a tension we have to live into because here's the question for you. Do you live up to your word? Like how often, in the words of Jesus, is your yes, yes? Do you actually value integrity? When you say you're going to do something, do you follow through on that? Do you live up to your word? Why or why not? And so we're gonna continue where we left off last week in 1 Samuel chapter one. If you wanna make your copy of scripture ready, 1 Samuel chapter one, we're gonna start in verse 19. Last week, we went through the first 18 verses um, and we're in this story of this individual, this lady whose name is Hannah, and how she was really sad. She wanted something. Uh, she wanted a child. She wasn't having a child. And you remember the story. She's at the temple. Um, it's a, a temporary form of the temple in Shiloh. And the priest thinks that she's drunk because she's crying. She's on the ground. She's pouring her heart out to God, wanting a child. Um, because the other wife, big no-no, remember? But the other wife was taunting her, um, provoking her. Uh, and so here we are, she has made her prayer. The priest who thought she was drunk realizes, oh, she's just heartbroken and he blesses her, sends her on her way and she goes. And this is where we pick up 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. And so we recall last week that Hannah, heartbroken because the Lord had closed her womb, she could not have children. She had a dead womb. There was no life in her womb. And she's heartbroken. She's pouring her heart out. She's praying to God, trusting that prayer is the means by which God loves to provide, that he loves to respond to our prayers. And so she's praying and asking God, and she has done this year after year after year. She has done this with hope and with faith, trusting that God can provide. She's made her request, and now God has responded to her request. God has provided as only he could. Hannah knew that her son was God's provision. You gotta see the significance of this, that Hannah was unable to have a child. She had a dead womb. And yet God now in his provision has brought life from death. God has provided life to Hannah. So we keep going, verse 21. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. So we have attention here now. If we recall in Hannah's prayer, as she was praying to the Lord, asking for him to give her a son, she made a promise to God. 
She made a vow that if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. He will be a Nazarite. He will be consecrated to you for his whole life. He will serve you. And so she's made this promise to God. If you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. He'll serve you all his days. And now here we are. God has answered her prayer. He's given her. He's provided for her life. Here is this life. She has a child in her hands. This baby she has dreamed of for so long and so sad for so many years, just begging God, would you give me a son? And then God gives her a son. And she has to remember, but I made you a promise that if you gave me a son, I would give him back. And so Elkanah's like, hey, it's time for us to go back and worship. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm not going yet. I made this promise to God that I would give him the son. I have the son, but I'm gonna wait until he's weaned. And so in this moment, we're like, oh no. Like she sees the beauty of having this child. She knows the cost of what it would be to follow through on her promises, to give him up. And now she's saying, I'm gonna wait until he's weaned. And we have to wonder, is she having second thoughts? Is she thinking, hmm, I know I said I would do this, but I'm not, actually willing to do that? Because is it not worth the cost to her anymore? What, where's, where's her head now? Where's her heart now? We have to just wonder what that's gotta be like to hold this baby in her arms, the one she prayed for for years. This beautiful gift from God and to think I have to give him back. Is this delaying the inevitable? Is this, is this honesty? that she's just trying to wean him and get him to a point where he's no longer dependent on her? Or is this her saying, ah, I won't do that? So let's keep reading. Verse 24. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Remember, Eli is the old priest who's kind of in retirement, but still hanging around. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. Remember, he's the one who thought she was drunk. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. That's amazing. Hannah followed through. She kept her word. She kept her promise. She asked God, would you give me what only you can provide? God provided what only he can provide. It's life. She now has life. When she once just had death, she has life, but she's made this promise that she would give life back and she does it. She follows through. She gives life back and she credits all of this to the Lord. He gave her a son and now she gives him as she promised to serve the Lord. And so we have to ask now, who is this son? Hannah has this son, promised that she would give him to the Lord. She now follows through on this promise. Who is this son? So imagine this tiny little child that she has brought now and she's bringing him to the priest. Here's this little toddler boy walking over with mom. She's like, Eli, you remember me? You thought I was drunk that one day? You remember I made a promise that day that if the Lord would give me a son, I would give that son back. I would give that life back. And so we have to wonder, who is this son? Why would the scriptures be telling us this story? Like, there must be something significant about this son. Who is he? Who is this child that's going to be raised in the presence of Yahweh? Where the Holy of Holies is now in here, and he's going to be in this whole sacrificial system all of his days. Like, who is this child? 
And we know Samuel, you may have noticed that this book we're reading is called 1 Samuel, and there's also a 2 Samuel. So it must be a pretty prominent figure. Samuel becomes a priest, a prophet, and a judge. He is kind of like a second Moses, so to speak, to where he's functioning in numerous offices. He has great significance in the story of God. This is the one who would anoint Saul as the first king of Israel, and then he would subsequently anoint David as the true king of Israel. David, the one who is a man after God's own heart. David, the one whose ultimate descendant would be Jesus, who is the king of kings, our Messiah, our salvation, life for the world. And this is the guy who would anoint David to start that lineage, that his throne would endure forever. And so this is a significant person. And so Samuel, the name, which is highly debated, and so I have no idea what it actually means, but we do know explicitly from this, because of what Hannah says, she named him Samuel because I requested him from the Lord. As David Payne comments on this, and he says, God had given him, Hannah gave him back. And Samuel's very name was a reminder of these things. We should not overlook the sacrifice made by Hannah, but her loss was to be Israel's gain, and she felt amply compensated. So, again, I I don't want us to just breeze through this and miss the significance of what this cost. If you have children or you want children, you know the value of life. So just imagine being this family. Like, you made a promise, Hannah, that your son would be given back, the son that we could not have, and you begged God to give you a son. We now have that son. It's our firstborn son together. And you know, Elkanah, actually, as the husband in this scenario, um, in the book of Numbers, we, we, we see the law spelled out, and there's actually provision that a husband in this time could find out that his wife had made a vow and he could remove any obligation of that vow. So Elkanah in this moment could legally, according to God's law, say, you made a vow, it was a little rash. I think you were a little emotional, you were distraught. You're free of that. I don't don't hold you to that, God no longer holds you to that. He could do that. And yet, Elkanah and Hannah take their firstborn together. Life given to them and they give it away. They give it back to the Lord. Do you see the cost of that? And not only the cost of this is their firstborn son together, and yet she also comes with a three-year-old bull, which also could be translated as three bulls, this clay jar of wine, the flour, all of that would be the equivalent of three sacrifices, which as good Trinitarian Christians, we see great significance in. And they're coming here. Anyone who would see that would say, wow, that's lavish. That's extravagant. This gift that you come to offer God is over the top. It's so much. And yet, what is that compared to the fact that their firstborn son, life from death, is now being given back to the Lord? Do you see the cost of this? How incredible that is. And to think, but isn't that the gospel? Because Elkanah and Hannah, with their firstborn son together, Elkanah would not be the first and only father to give his only son, his firstborn son. That God the Father Almighty, eternal, everlasting Father, he would give his first son, Jesus, the Son of God, who also existed for all of eternity, co-equal with the Father. But he would give him, he would become human in the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus, the Son of God, would take on personhood as a human. 
and now fully God and fully man, the firstborn son of God, he would come and his life would be given. And this is the good news, this is the gospel that we have life when we had death, that life has been given to us. When we were dead, God brought us to life in the son of God who gave his life for us so that we would no longer be dead, but we would be alive with him as he died and took all of our sin, all of our shame, all the just consequences due on us for our rebellion against God. He would take that on himself and put it to death on a cross. But then he would come back to life. He would rise from the dead and in coming back to life, he is the first fruit, meaning there's so much more fruit to follow. This is the first of the season and we are the rest of it, that we would walk into newness of life with him. And so we celebrate that with baptism that it's this picture of how we identify with Christ and his death and we go under the water as we have died with him. And then we relate with him as we come out of the water, rising from the dead, this newness of life that his death is our death and his life is our life. And it, all of this comes about because there was a father who was willing to give up his son so that we could have life. And so we see such beauty in the gospel of this. This is the bottom line what will you do with the life you've been given? If God has now given us life in his son, what will you do with the life you have been given? You really need to answer that question. Every single day, we must ask the question, if I have been given life, what will I do with that life? If I was dead and deserving of wrath, deserving of condemnation forever, but God in his grace, his mercy, his love for me said, I want to give you life. And it came at the expense of his own life. What will I now do with the life he has given me? What will you do with the life that he has given you? Hannah was given life when she once had just death. As she was given life, we see what she did. She gave it back. She saw the life given to her as something that she could joyfully give back. So I referenced this passage last week, but I want us to spend a few moments on this. This is Romans chapter 12, the first couple verses. But in Romans chapter 12, we see what the, the answer to this is. Of like, what should I do with the life I've been given? Or what should be my response to the gospel? This good news that God has given life through Jesus. Romans 12, one to two says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, <clears throat> but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I want to read that again. And I want you to listen for the answer to the question, what do we do in response to the gospel? What do we do in response to the life that we have been given? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, and view of the mercies of God as reference to all of the gospel, all of this good news. So in light of that, in view of that, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So what do you do with life that you've been given? You give it back. A living sacrifice, you give it back, holy and pleasing to God. He has made it holy, he has made it pleasing. That is the view of mercies of God, that he has done what only he can do, that we were undeserving, and God says, here's grace, here's life. 
He has made us holy and pleasing and we return that back to him. And then what's the next line? This is your true worship. What do we do with the life we've been given? We give it back as an act of worship. That the entirety of the cosmos exists for the glory of God as an expression of his glory, of his character, of who he is, his attributes, that we would see him as glorious and that we would make him known as glorious, that we would exalt him above everything else. He is glorious. He's majestic. There's no one like him. And he comes in to us, sinners, stumbling saints, all of us, and he comes in saying, I love you. I love you. You were dead and I'm giving you the gift of life. And so now what are you gonna do with it? And it's not like he needs us, but in his grace, he loves, he delights, and like a father to his son, that little toddler running around says, I'm gonna give you this, I wanna watch what you do with it. And you know how much he delights in us returning it back to him? That whole sixpence none the richer idea. It's not just a band, but it's the idea of a child getting a gift for father. And what did that child do to earn any of the money or materials to make that gift or buy that gift for dad? Nothing. Dad bought that gift for dad. But you know that dad delights when that child comes running excited. Look what I got you, daddy. This is our opportunity to run back to the father and say, thank you for giving me life. I give it back to you. I'll live for you. And you know the smile on his face when we do that. Do you know the way that Zephaniah says he dances over us? He delights in us. He loves us like that. And so we should just worship continually. It's in view of the mercies of God. This is how we worship. We see and we believe that he is worthy and true because that is what worship is. The root word is worth. Worship Worship is really just seeing the worth of God, seeing he's worth everything. He is the greatest treasure. He's the treasure hidden in the field that we say, I'll sell everything so I can just have that. He is worth every cost. Like Hannah coming, here's my firstborn, here's even more. You're worth everything. We worship in view of the mercies of God. We see and believe he is worthy and true. And that means we see how he's expressed his worth. We see that penultimately. We see this so much in the gospel that Jesus has come. He has died in our place. He has risen again. We see that this is mercy. So confess your sin and confess his lordship. Jesus is Lord. You must admit that you are a sinner. You cannot do this for yourself. You cannot be good enough. You cannot earn your way into a right standing relationship with God. But God is gracious and says, you'll never earn this. But at my own expense, I give it to you freely. I want you. Like God actually wants you. Is that amazing? It is amazing. It should inspire, it should incite worship to think God wants me that he has made a way. So God, I'm a sinner, but you are a savior for sinners. And so you are Lord, you are over my life. I trust you for salvation. And then we celebrate the salvation. And this is what we do in worship. We're celebrating that victory has been won. He has done this for us. And it says to present your body as a living sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Like the, the picture there, a living sacrifice. And so you think in this kind of sacrificial system, you come there with a live animal. You bring the lamb in or you bring the turtle doves or whatever and you bring them to the priest and they have to slaughter that thing. They have to kill it. And they put it on the altar and they burn and make this offering. And so you think about that, this idea of like, okay, I'm now the offering. I'm the sacrifice. 
but I'm a living sacrifice. And so every day, I need to take myself off of my own throne, and I need to go walk over to that altar and climb up on it as a living sacrifice. And so now you imagine being this animal placed up on this altar, priest is there with the dagger, like ready to go to town on it. Does that animal want to stay there? No. Wants to get out of there. This is crazy. And so often that's our wrestle too, right? As a living sacrifice. I'm up here on this altar. It's going to cost me something. As a living sacrifice, I just want to run. But we have to remember, it's in view of God's mercies. When we remember the gospel, how he paid the price, now everything else is worth it. In fact, this is now a joy to actually willingly now give my life. I want to be on this altar. God, use me. Take every bit of me. What a joy it is to be here, to give back when you gave all. So as a living sacrifice, we present our body. Um, the word in Greek, peristomi, for present, it, it literally translates to stand near. I just love that too. He's saying, hey, stand near God as a living sacrifice. That as we offer our life back to God, this is the beauty of the gospel. That he has brought us back into communion with him. And that I get to enjoy being with God. And so as I present or be near to God with my living sacrifice, everything that I am, I have the enjoyment of actually being in fellowship with him. And so you can say with Paul, I've learned the secret to being content in all things. Like, no matter what you throw at me, shipwreck, starving to death, snake bites, crazy people throwing me in jail, beating me, all the crazy things. Like, I know, I know how to actually be joyful in all of this. It's just to know my king. It's just to know that Jesus is with me. You can do anything, and it's checkmate. You've got nothing on me, because I'm with my king. So present, be near God. Commune with him. Enjoy him every day. This is how you worship, is to just enjoy his presence, to know that he is near, and he's promised to never leave you, to never forsake you. And we can be honest in times and say, where, God, where are you? How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? We can express those things honestly like we talked about last week. We can be honest about that and yet have the reassurance that even though it feels like this at moments, he's here. And so what do I need to do? I need to go back to in view of his mercies. In light of the gospel, I must remind myself of the gospel. I must remind you and you must remind me of this good news that God has brought us near. And so now in nearness to God, I present my life. You gave me life, I give it back to you. And what a joy. And then to worship is to not be conformed to this age. But to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That the battlefield ultimately is in your mind. And so we must renew our mind in view of the mercies of God. And so we don't conform to this age. This is ongoing battle with the flesh. That right now, I stand before you as a broken sinner. And yet, a justified saint in the sight of God. That I am still stumbling through this life, raging and waging war on my sinful flesh that still wants to do things like lust and still wants to do things like covet and still wants to do things like be arrogant and all kinds of things like I could go on and on and on and tell you how wretched of a person Kevin is. And yet when God sees me, he sees the perfection of his son and his righteousness. 
And he says, this is who you are. And so because that is who you are, it's who I've made you and it's who I'm making you and I will complete what I began. Live in light of that, Kevin. So put that sin to death. And the words of the Puritan John Owen, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But sons and daughters of God don't lay down and just, ah, and we fight. And so maybe you've laid down and I'm calling you right now to stand up. Stand up and fight your sin. And you only do that by the power of God himself. The one who started it will complete it. And yet he says, now you get to participate in this. Like that kid, he didn't have money. He didn't have materials. But he comes with a gift for daddy. And daddy delights in it. In the same way, now you run back to God. Say, help me God, help me God, help me God. And you fight and it may take a long time. I know it's absolutely taking a long time in my life. And I hear Paul saying things, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He will deliver us. And so we get to fight knowing he's already won the war. There's just these little pockets of resistance in our flesh that don't know. The battle is actually done. The war is done. But we get to fight in that. So fight, kill your sin. Do not be conformed to this age. And then, lastly, we get to proclaim his glory. Now, this is what worship is. is proclaiming the glory of God. Do you see the sequence here? That worship begets worship. As this concludes this chapter, Hannah brings the boy. She has been given life. She decides, I will give life back. And she does this joyfully, willingly. And as they give life back, the boy is now here. And then it concludes with the statement, then he worshiped the Lord there. That as Hannah worships, it brings about worship from others. The first promise, so to speak, of Jesus to his disciples. Follow me and I will what? I'll make you fishers of men. There was no exception in that. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The Great Commission, go therefore, because he has all power. So go because he has all power and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And though I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That the presence of God will always be with us. He will be with us. And he has called us to say, hey, you get it. You see the gospel, you see this good news, you believe it, and you get to enjoy me now for all of eternity. Now, because you get to worship me like that, go worship me in a way that they get to know it. Go tell the world about the glory of God. Go worship in a way that the world sees and says, that's different. What's so weird about you? When you've got layoffs on the job, when you've got marriage falling apart, when you've got whatever is going on, whatever calamity, can you see that that is all attention that is just going to be resolved in nothing else but the gospel. These are just redemptive longings in every fracture, in every failure. It's a redemptive longing for what only God can do ultimately. And when you see that and then worship God in light of that, and worship him in such a way that others would begin to worship, that we would multiply, that the great commission would be carried out, that everyone on this planet would know the glory of God. Even if they reject it, they would know there's a God and he is glorious. So let's show him to be so. Hannah was given life from death. She returned it to the Lord 
and that life was then multiplied for the glory of God and the good of his people. Can we be people like that who will give our life a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God because he has made it such. This is the good news. He has brought us back to himself by sending his son. Will you believe that? Will you confess that? And let it be to the glory of God and the good of everyone around us. What will you do with the life that you've been given from death? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your profound love. God, we, we look to the cross as this expression of how much you love us, as the, the revealing of your love, your love made manifest among us, that you sent your son that we could have eternal life. And so God, help us. Would you just burn that into our eyes, that, that we see everything through that lens. In light of your mercy, God, would you help us, as you've promised to, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, God, help us not to conform to this age. God, help us to fight sin. Spirit, I ask that you would convict us if there are things that are hidden in our hearts and our minds, the things that we think no one else knows about, and maybe no one else does, but you know, God. So would you press in in these moments? Because we want to be holy and pleasing to you. God, would you use us, make us a loud voice, proclaiming your glory, proclaiming your gospel, that the world can know you're glorious in this way, that you're gracious. God, help us to love you well and to love others. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.